Here this morning, I want you to turn to the word of God again, Ezekiel chapter 1. Ezekiel chapter 1. Um, this afternoon, we're not going to have an afternoon meeting here. We will, after this gathering, we'll eat together, we'll fellowship together here. Um, I've got a brother-in-law I'm leaving to uh, the aeroplane this afternoon, so I, I'll be going not immediately, but at a reasonable time just to be able to get him there. Uh, it looks like we're going to have bad weather this coming week. How bad it will get, we don't know. Um, you may want snow this week or maybe you don't want snow, but it's just to be aware um, that there may or may not be. But God willing, we'll be here preaching, teaching uh, the last message in the series in the Book of Ruth, or at least the last scriptures uh, contained in the book of Ruth and I think it'll be a very exciting study to look at the finale, the finish, how the book of Ruth uh, finishes and really what the whole point of everything that happened really was. We'll look at that and uh, see what God himself actually says uh, concerning that but very fascinating <clears throat> what is in the word of God. Praise God. I, I want you to turn to Ezekiel chapter 1. We're going to begin reading verse uh, 4 to 10, if I manage to do this. And we're going to continue on our series, The Four Seasons of Life. This is part six in this series. And my message this morning, the eagle face of the cherubim, if you haven't been here, that can sound like an extremely unusual title for a sermon, a message in church. But I want to tell you, I'll explain and we'll go further of what we've already dealt with. But reading from Ezekiel chapter 1 from verse 4. And I, Ezekiel, looked and behold, a whirlwind came out of the north, a great cloud and a fire enfolding itself and a brightness was round about it and out of the midst thereof as the color of amber out of the midst of the fire also out of the midst thereof came the likeness of four living creatures and this was their appearance they had the likeness of a man and everyone had four faces and everyone had four wings and their feet were straight feet, and the sole of their feet was like the sole of a calf's foot, and they sparkled like the color of burnished brass. And they had the hands of a man under their wings, on their four sides, and they four had their faces and their wings, and their wings were joined one to another, and they turned not when they went, and they went every one straight forward, as for the likeness of their faces, they four had the face of a man, the face of a lion on the right side, and they four had the face of an ox on the left side. They four also had the face of an eagle. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for 
the Word of God, and even for these messages, how you've encouraged us and spoken to us, and what you've opened up to us, Lord God, that there are four seasons of life. There's four seasons in our year, and there's the four corners of the earth. Lord God, we thank you, Lord God, for these lessons that you have built into our Christian life, four very different seasons of life. Sometimes we find ourselves in the valley, sometimes on the mountaintop. And oh God, I thank you for your grace and your love and your mercy. Lord God, that you don't only give us sunlight, but you give us darkness as well. You don't only give us the warmth of the sun, but you give us the cold of the frost as well. And Lord God, all of this is to bring forth your divine purpose and plan in our life. You do take us through dark times as well as light times, easy times. Lord God, a blessing as well as hard times of trial and a buffeting. But Lord God, all of this is in your plan for our life. You're working out your plan that we might be formed into the very image and the likeness of the Lord Jesus Christ. And oh God, I do pray for that miraculous wind of your spirit to blow upon us in this meeting, even as the word of God is preached, do miracles in hearts and lives. Speak to individuals like only you can through your word in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Amen. And so my message, part six, the eagle face of the cherubim. We've already looked at the human face of the cherubim, the ox face of the cherubim, the lion face of the cherubim. But this is the fourth and final face of the cherubim. And that face is the face of an eagle. It says here in Ezekiel chapter 1 and verse 10, speaking about the fourth face, it says, they four, each of the four creatures, cherubims, angelic beings, cherubims are not angels. Angels don't have wings. Cherubim have four wings or six wings. They are angelic. They are limited. Angels are without number. And we have seen here in Ezekiel chapter 1 that these cherubim are on the earth. In Revelation 4, they are in the throne room of God in heaven, in God's presence itself. But here they're on the earth with men. And when you see them like this, they carry a message. When you look at a cherubim, you see the likeness, the appearance of a man. When all this comes together, you have the image of a man. And yet you see an eagle, an ox, a lion. You see all of this. But do you know what it says? It uses the word, when he looks at them, the likeness of them is the closest resemblance. It doesn't say they're an eagle or an ox. It doesn't say that. It says they resemble this. In other words, it's symbolic of what these creatures are. They are remarkable creatures. But we have began to look at each cherubim as a picture of a redeemed, born-again Christian. Remember the nine points I gave you? We went through these few verses, and there are nine distinct things. Number one, they're called living creatures which means they're alive, they're fresh, they're strong. A real Christian is born again. He's made alive. He's not dead. Religion will kill you. A religious person is a dead person. But these living creatures are alive. They are strong. They are fresh. The second thing we looked at was they live at the throne of God. In other words, in a place of prayer 
or adoration of God. They're in the presence of God. Third of all, they're full of eyes, which means they are filled with the Holy Spirit of God. They are overflowing with God's Spirit. Number four, they have four wings, which means they're not earthbound. They're actually heavenly creatures, or this speaks of the heavenly life of a real Christian. If you live like a sinner, if you walk like a sinner, if you speak like a sinner, guess what? You are a sinner. If you live in this world like other men, don't tell me you're a Christian. If you curse like them, if you drink like them, if you think like them, do you know what, why that is? It's because you are what they are. But we know that there is a heavenly life. Fifth of all, we see that they continually praise God. Number six, we looked at their walk. Remember how they walk? They walk in a straight line and they always go forward. Also, their hoofs are split like a calf. In other words, that was the mark of holiness in their walk. And we've seen their feet were sparkling like it had been in the fire. Number six, they are led of the Spirit. Number seven, we saw their witness that they're flames of fire. They're burning. They actually impact those around them. And then we saw number eight, their unity. And I missed one somewhere. I don't know where I missed it. But anyway, you can go back and go over those. And so we've seen with the cherubim, we've seen that there's certain marks about them that speak to us, that have a message. You can't look at the cherubim and just say they're angelic, strange creatures that have no message for you. They do have a message. And God has actually built that into them. Then we looked at their four faces. They have one head, but they've got four different faces. And these different Four faces represent four different seasons of life. We know that our season has four distinct seasons, though sometimes it can seem a bit confused and mixed up. We have our winter, our springtime, our summer, our autumn. They are all distinct. Each has a different purpose. All is very defined in what happens in that season. That season is important. You may not like autumn, Autumn has to come. You may not like the colder winter. Winter has to come. What would spring or summer be without winter? You may say, I want to stay in summer. It would destroy you. You may say, I like winter. Winter would kill all of us off. I want to assure you. And yet God has mingled this four seasons of life. We read of many fours in the Bible. And in the New Testament, we have the four gospels. When the Bible deals with four things, it's dealing with a fullness, a completeness, a global aspect, nothing left out. It's given you everything that you need uh, to know. God has set the seasons. And in your Christian life, God has ordained and set different seasons. He doesn't want you always to be shouting on the mountaintop. You want that. You think that's a victorious Christian life. I'm sorry to tell you that little growth happens on top of a mountaintop. I've met Christians who say, I live perpetually on a mountaintop. They're very shallow. Do you know all the growth happens in the valley? 
If you don't have valley experiences, you don't know any growth in your life. You're a shallow person. You may shout all the time, smile, clap your hands, and you're always rejoicing. I promise you, if your heart has never been broken, you're a very shallow person. And so we do need mountaintops. We also need valleys. We need summer, but we also need winter. And God has ordained all of this. It is his sovereignty watching over your life. If you're walking with him, he ordains a winter time in your life. You must experience winter. You must experience trials. But he also ordains a summertime when his sun shall begin to shine upon you. And he has a unique purpose for each season. In Genesis chapter 1, we read about the fourth day of creation. How God created the sun and the moon and the stars. In verse 14 of Genesis 1, it says, Why he done that? To divide the day from the night, and he let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years. So notice that at the beginning, God ordained different seasons. He appointed them. He fixed their time, and he fixed a certain purpose behind them. And so we have seen this. And now let me bring you to part six, the eagle face of the cherubim here this morning. We know that in the Old Testament, as we've already dealt with, when Israel camped, the 12 tribes of Israel, they were moving through the wilderness for 40 long years. And every time they camped at nighttime, they camped with Three tribes on each side, three in the north, three to the south, three to the west, three to the east. And they're camped like this. And in each of the four directions, they camped under a different banner. Three tribes, each camped under a certain banner. And that banner had a picture or an emblem. We have already seen that three of the tribes camped under a banner with a man's face. Three camped under a banner with a lion's face and three camped under a banner with an ox's face. In fact, the three faces of the cherubim. And guess what? The fourth and last area that we haven't dealt with yet, three tribes camped to the north of the tabernacle and they raised a standard or a banner with an ensign or a symbol upon it. And although in the Bible it doesn't tell us what the symbol was, we know that Jewish history tells us that to the north was the symbol of an eagle. We see with this cherubim as well, we saw that the human face looking at you, then there was a lion's face to the right, there was an ox's face to the left, and there was an eagle's face that is looking back the way, on the back of the head of the cherubim. And each cherubim that you find in the Bible, it has an eagle's face. But listen to Revelation chapter four, verse seven. Again, we see the four cherubim in the presence of God, but this time they're a bit different. They don't have four wings, they have six wings. And they're not, they don't have four different faces. Each of the four cherubim embody that certain feature. And so it says in Revelation chapter four, verse seven, the fourth beast was like a flying eagle. Notice that an entire cherubim took up the appearance of a flying eagle in the presence of God. 
Here when Israel camped, it says in Numbers chapter 2 and verse 2, every man of the children of Israel shall pitch or camp by his standard with the ensign of their father's house. Then in verse 25, the standard of the camp of Dan, and this is what we're getting to. It's the standard of the camp of Dan shall be to the north side of their armies. When you go into the Israeli or Jewish history books, they say that Dan to the north that raised up a standard and had an ensign or a symbol upon it, it was a symbol of a flying eagle. In other words, Israel always raised four standards. When they camp or when they marched, they marched under four distinct flags. Each of those flags represented something. And the tribe of Dan, along with Asher and Naphtali, camped under this eagle flag. They carried this flag. They camped with this flag. This eagle flag represented something in the nation of Israel. It embodied a character of God and the character of what God's people are to be. Do you realize there's a season in your Christian life that you're to be like an eagle? You won't always feel like an eagle. Sometimes you're to be like an ox that we dealt with last time. It's all labor. It's all work. It's all servitude. It is exhausting at times. That is a season of the Christian life. But there is, thank God, a season of the eagle. There is a time where under the banner, we realize our God comes to us as an eagle, but also we can embody the attributes of an eagle. Let me take you over to the, I'm just laying the foundation, over to the New Testament. Remember we said Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, the four Gospels, also tie in with this. The four flags that were raised in Israel in the Old Testament that they marched under. When we come to the New Testament, we see that God raised up four Gospels in the New Testament. These are our four banners for the church. Matthew, Mark, Luke and John. We saw that Matthew was the lion-like face. We saw that Mark was the ox face or the servant. We saw that Luke was the man-like face. Now we come to John's gospel and guess what? When you begin to read John's gospel, it is unique from Matthew, Mark, and Luke. They represented the servitude of the ox, the humanity of the man, the courageousness of the lion. But here, when you come to John's gospel in the New Testament, the symbol of John's gospel is actually the eagle. When you begin reading the gospel of John, you see Christ manifested not just as a man, not as a servant, not even as a king, but you now begin to see him manifest as God. He is God. He came as God. He was always God. And so John's gospel raises a standard for the church or a banner. We march under it. We camp under it. There's a message in the gospel of John that's utterly different than Matthew. Don't think the four gospels are the same. They are not the same. They each have a unique message about one Christ, one person, one head, and yet four faces that reveal the fullness of Christ, the fullness of the gospel. They confirm one another. But let's look at the distinction of John's gospel here for a moment. We know that Matthew, Mark, and Luke 
are often, I know we don't talk about it here, but in books and theology, they will call them the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. The word synoptic, it actually means with the same vision or the same eye. In other words, Matthew, Mark, and Luke look from the same general direction at the life of Christ. They cover 90% of the same material. But John is different. Do you realize that? You see, when you come to the gospel of Matthew, you read it from a Jewish perspective. It was written specifically for the Jew, yet it's for all men in every generation and every nation. Never say Matthew is only for the Jew. It's not. But it was written with the Jew in mind. Mark was written with the Romans in mind. Luke was written with the Greeks in mind. So who is John written with in mind? If we have this aspect of the Jews, the Romans, the Greeks, that covers everyone. So John's gospel is written from a different perspective than Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Do you know the perspective I believe that John is written from is an utterly unique and different way than the other three are written from? I believe it's from a heavenly perspective, not an earthly perspective, not to help man, but it comes direct from heaven and is utterly unique. When you read the gospel of Matthew, you have a genealogy. And guess what? It goes all the way back to Abraham. When you go to the gospel of Luke, there's another genealogy. It goes all the way back to Adam. But when you open up the gospel of John right at the very beginning, guess where John goes back to? He doesn't go back to Abraham. He doesn't go back to Adam. He goes all the way back to creation and eternity to God himself. Listen to what it says, these wonderful words. And you ought to memorize John chapter one, verse one to three. You ought to memorize this. It ought to be in you. In the beginning was the word. Who was the word? It was the Lord Jesus Christ, the Logos, the spoken word of God. In the beginning, what was the beginning? In creation, in the beginning was the word. He was already there when things were created. The word was already there. This is not the genealogy of Adam or Abraham. This is going right back before anything was created. In the beginning was the word. And the word was with God. And the word was God. Notice that the word who is the Lord Jesus Christ, right at the very beginning, he was with God, distinct and yet he was God. He was God manifest in the flesh. The same was in the beginning with God. And notice this, verse three, all things were made by him. All things, all things. He's not just a man. Before he was a man, he created all things. He was God. Never let anyone tell you that Christ never claimed to be God. Yes, he did. And he was crucified for claiming divinity or equality with God. All things were made by him. And without him was not anything made that was made. So this is where John's gospel immediately starts. It doesn't start trying to show you that he's descended back through a Jewish royal lineage to David and to Abraham. It doesn't do that. Neither does it show his genealogy all the way back to Adam. 
in the whole line of man. No, it doesn't do that. It takes you right back to the beginning and the source of all things. When you begin to read the gospel of John, you see it's the eagle gospel. It is the symbol of a flying heavenly eagle. It's not earthbound at all. It's not from man's perspective. It's radically unique. When you begin to read John's gospel and compare it with the other three, it only covers seven, listen this, it only covers seven incidents recorded in the three other gospels. Only seven incidents line up and are exactly the same. Everything else is utterly unique and you don't find it in the other three gospels. Let me give you an example. You have Nicodemus who he says, you must be born again. You don't find that in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. You find it in John's gospel. Or what about the little woman of Samaria who had a moral problem? Remember, she had had five husbands, and the man you're living with now isn't your husband. You haven't married him. There's a problem here. And he then teaches her to worship, and she becomes a mini evangelist. She goes and leads her whole community to Christ. That isn't found in any of the other three gospels. It's actually here. He also records only seven miracles. The other gospels record far more miracles. He is restricted again to seven. Five of these are new. And he doesn't use the word miracles. He uses the word uniquely signs. And so John's gospel is very unique. There's no parables in the gospel of John. He just doesn't cover any single one of them covered in Matthew, Mark, or Luke. And listen this, 23 times in the Gospel of John, Jesus calls himself, I am. That term, I am, is taken from Exodus chapter 3 in the Old Testament, where God speaks to Moses and he says, who are you? Who do I say you are when I go to Israel? He says, say that I am. In other words, I am God. I am, there is no other than me. Well, when you come to John's gospel, 23 times Jesus claims to be I am. You know some of them. In John chapter 12, he says, I am the resurrection and the life. In John chapter 14, sorry, let me uh, just, just go back a bit. In John chapter 10, sorry, John chapter 8, he says, I am the light of the world. I am the light of the world. In John chapter 10, he says, I am the door. He also says, I am the shepherd. In John 12, I am the resurrection and life. In John 14, I am the true vine. And you get this statement only in John, not Matthew, not Mark, not Luke. It is John. And so you see, don't think the four gospels are just the same. They're not. This gospel of John is a banner of a flying eagle. Our God is a great eagle. Go back to Exodus. And the Lord says, I come and rescued you out of Egypt like an eagle. I come and delivered you. I bore you. I helped you. And so God himself pictures himself as an eagle. He's not an eagle any more than he is a dove. He's not a dove. He's like these things. There are certain attributes which are remarkable and amazing. And so we see it is the divine gospel. It is the heavenly gospel. It's from God's perspective totally. And there's many unique words in the gospel of John. The word abide is used constantly to abide in the Lord in a relationship, to believe, 
The word father, he's always talking about his heavenly father in the gospel of John. Me and the father are one. If you've seen the father, you've seen me. If you've seen me, you've seen the father. I came to do the will of the father. The word finish, the word judge. Isn't that amazing? You also get the word love, predominates. So you get the word judge and love in the same gospel. Some people want all love and they say there's no judgment. Or they find all judgment and say, surely there's no love there. No, not in this gospel. It is the apostle of love. That's what John is called, isn't he? The apostle of love. But also the word truth is constantly used. The word no, the word life, the word verily, the word world, the word witness is used 50 times. It is an utterly unique gospel. In John's gospel in chapter one, verse 18, he says, no man has seen God at any time. The only begotten son, that's Jesus. The word that was there in the beginning who created all things, which is in the bosom of the father. He hath declared him. Where's Jesus? He's in the bosom of the father and he reveals the father to you. He's in the bosom of the father. Listen later on in John's gospel, John chapter 13, verse 23. Now there was leaning on Jesus' bosom, one of his disciples whom Jesus loved. Do you know that's a code word for John in the gospel of John? He doesn't mention himself. He always talks about the disciple who Jesus loved. Where is that disciple? He's the youngest of all of them. He's leaning on the bosom of the Lord Jesus Christ. When they reclined at the table, he got close to that heart. He was close to the man of Calvary. What a remarkable thing. This John is a very unusual character. He was the youngest of all of the disciples. Do you know John was the only one who knew the identity of who was going to betray Jesus? Do you know he was the only one that knew that Judas was about to betray him? Peter didn't know that. Matthew didn't know that. And we don't have time to go there. But when you come to the book of Revelation, it is John who reveals much about the coming Antichrist more than any other single man. John was the oldest of the 12 apostles. He was the last to die. He was also the only one who never managed to get martyred. They put him in a boiling pot and he survived it. They then put him as a prisoner on the island of Patmos. They confined him as a very old man. But you know what? They couldn't confine him. He mounted up with wings of an eagle, ascended off that little island, and up in the heavenlies, caught up in the presence of God. God showed him visions about our generation, what is just about to happen, and even speaking about an hour coming before Jesus would come again, when men would receive a mark on their foreheads and the right hand and wouldn't be able to buy or sell without it. All from that little island, he ascended with wings of eagle. Now let me bring you to my message here. I've got four points here. And believe me, I'm going to confine this. Because if I get onto an eagle, we'll be here for a few days. I love the eagle. I once wrote a little booklet for my friends at Christmas time, many years ago in my early 20s, on the eagle. I wrote up the story of an eagle, the attributes of an eagle, because it was so beautiful. And what a Christian was to be as an eagle. 
And so we see this fourth and final face of the cherubim is the face of an eagle. The cherubim over in Revelation 4 that John saw in the presence of God, he saw one of these eagles, the, sorry, one of these cherubim, the fourth one, literally embodied the whole appearance of an eagle. It was amazing. And I want to give you four things about an eagle here that I believe that was a message to Israel in the Old Testament, the church in the New Testament. I believe it marks John the Apostle. And I believe that you're going to see that it has a message for you and I. Listen to what it says in Job. Job says an awful lot about an eagle that's very beautiful. And you're going to see it's a type of the Christian. Job 39. And it says this, Job speaking about the eagle. He says, the eagle makes her nest on high, way above this world. Do you see it's gospel of John? The eagle makes its nest way above. It doesn't nest down here on the earth like other birds. She dwelleth and abideth on the rock. That's what an eagle does. The Bible says it very clearly and we know that and the strong place, and upon the crag of the rock. And from thence she seeketh the prey, and her eyes behold afar off. So we see that the eagle has a very special association with not just a rock, but its rock. It's born on a rock. It'll die on a rock if it can help it. It has its children on a rock, and it continually nests upon that rock throughout its life. I read of one particular eagle built the same nest or built on the same rock, the same nest for 34 years. Every year it came back to the same rock, to the same nest, and it just began to expand that same nest and it began to have more children or little chicks on that nest. So let me give you the four things here concerning the eagle that you will find in the Bible, but you'll also find in nature. And it's a message for you and I. We need eagle Christians in this church. And I want to tell you there is a season of being like an eagle in the Christian life that's going to encourage you right now what I'm going to tell you. My first point, the wings of an eagle. The size of the wingspan of an eagle is remarkable. It's about seven feet across its full wingspan or a length of about two meters. The wings of an eagle are defined and mentioned many times in the Bible. Time and time again, we read about how an eagle flies or the wings of an eagle. They are utterly unique. Do you remember over in Daniel's prophecy, we see a lion with eagle's wings. When you go to the New Testament of the book of Revelation, we see that God gives the woman that flees into the wilderness for three and a half years. What does he give her? The wings of an eagle. So the wings of an eagle are symbolic. They represent something. These beautiful, large wings that God created on this beautiful animal that I'm utterly enamored with. We read when you begin studying eagles, and I've studied them since I was a teenager. I love the eagle. I read about them. I, 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 you can't walk around a corner in our house without bumping into something with an eagle on it. You won't get very far. I love the eagles. But when you begin studying an eagle, it can go 
25,000 feet into the air, which is about five miles. It'll just keep flying, flying. These wings are so remarkable that it gets lifted far above this earth, almost out of sight of this earth. These wings are majestic. You know, a parrot talks a lot. You know that. You, you've seen the, either the videos or whatever. Parrots talk a lot, but they fly very little. An eagle never talks. It doesn't have a lot of talk, but I'm telling you, it flies. It goes somewhere and it ascends. I've met a lot of parrots in the church who talk a lot and fly little, but oh, that we had many eagles in the church of this day. I've met many chickens that cluck around and peck around in the farmyard. I've heard many crowing roosters in the church. Believe me, I've met them. Jesus has betrayed everyone and all of the rest. I have heard them, I want to tell you. But there are very few flying eagles that ascend above this world. There is the season of the eagle. There are the attributes of the eagle where it ascends high up in the air. Do you know how it ascends is with these eagle wings. Have you ever had a season where God grants you the power of eagle's wings? to mount up, to ascend. It says in Job 39, verse 27, about an eagle mounting up. Now notice this, eagle's wings are utterly unique. They're not like other birds' wings. An eagle doesn't fly off like this, it mounts up. It says in Isaiah chapter 40, verse 31, they, talking of Christians, believers, they shall mount up with wings as an eagle. You know what that shows me is there's an experience where God wants his people to mount up with wings of an eagle. Do you realize that is for you as a real Christian experience where you experience what an eagle experiences when it mounts up? Do you know mounting up is a unique thing? It's a very unusual thing. I don't know whether you've ever seen Harrier jets in the British Air Force. Do you know, most aircrafts take off flying like this. They fly off down the runway, don't they? A Harrier jet doesn't. Do you know what it does? It can, from a static experience, it mounts up like an eagle. It goes straight up. It lifts up out of any tight position. It doesn't need a runway. It lifts up. And this is what an eagle does. That means when an eagle is in a tight place, a narrow place, a closed in place, when everything is tight and around it, when other birds couldn't fly off, when other aircraft cannot take off, do you know what an eagle does? From a very tight, confined place, it can go straight up. It mounts up with the wings of an eagle. The Bible tells us that can be your experience, that when you're in a tight spot, when you feel you can't escape, when you feel it's the end and it's over, when everything is pressing in, do you know that you can mount up with the wings of an eagle? You can literally lift up out of your troubles, out of your tight spot, out of impossibility, out of a situation that others could not get out of. Do you know what mounting up also means? When the storms come, an eagle mounts up. It also means it locks its wings. It has the ability not to be moved by the storms. In the storm, it locks its wings and begins to fly and to ascend upward. The eagle, when it reaches a storm and a storm's battering it, and a storm can damage an eagle, 
The bigger you are, the more you can hurt. I can assure you, the closer you walk with God, the more you can hurt. I want to tell you, things do, do hurt you, even when you walk very closely to God. But what an eagle does, it has learned the ability to allow the storm to lift it higher. When a storm comes, an eagle doesn't just lock its wings and try to push its way through. It doesn't do that. You know what? It allows the storm to begin lifting it and carrying it higher and higher and higher. When a storm comes, an eagle goes higher. So many of us, when the storm comes, we do a nosedive. We go down under that. But an eagle has learned to ride the storm. It has learned to use that storm. No matter the storm or trouble that comes to you, rather than destroying me, I can go higher in God. Do you realize in your life this morning, there's things that have come and you think this is going to destroy me. This is minimizing me. I don't know if I'll get through this or not. If you can learn this morning with wings of an eagle, lock your wings and this storm can drive you higher, heavenward, beyond the storm towards God. And that's what eagles' wings are. God actually promises they shall mount up with wings as an eagle. Lock your wings this morning. See, this is meant to destroy me, pull me down, discourage me. You know what? I'm going to ride the storm. I want to tell you, Candace's death is enough to put me in an early grave. Do you know that eagles only mate with one other eagle their entire life? And often when an eagle's mate dies, it'll die of a broken heart. It is so faithful, so loyal, so committed that the eagle will fall into depression and can die soon afterwards because that is its partner. Anyway, that's, that's by the by. But you see here that these eagles ride out the storm. They see the storms coming. They harness the storm. And what's meant to destroy them? What I was going to say was, Candace's death is enough to destroy me. I want to tell you, I live with that every single day. It's enough to kill me physically and break my heart asunder. But I want to tell you, there's a storm I'm going to ride out as an eagle. I need these wings of an eagle. I'm not just preaching to you this morning. I need to mount up out of my tight situation. I need to learn how to lock my wings. I need to begin to sin on the very, uh, on the very roughage of this storm. It says in Proverbs chapter 30 and verse 18, there be three things which are too wonderful for me. The proverb uh, writer says this, that there are three things too wonderful for me. Yea, four, which I know not. He's going to state three things that are wonderful, amazing. He's in awe of, he can't even get his mind around. He hasn't quite figured out yet. Four things he's going to mention. But you know the first one he says, the way of an eagle in the air. He says, it's too wonderful for me. I am in awe of the movement. Go home and look up YouTube and find an eagle flan. Just watch it for five minutes. The beauty of it, the grandeur. And remind yourself, God says, you can have the wings of an eagle in the time of trouble to lift you up above this earth. You know, if you get locked into your trials, it'll destroy you. If you see only your situation, it will pull you down into this earth. It'll grind you into nothingness. You better ascend above this and, and see way beyond it. 
And so the way of an eagle in the air is a remarkable thing. Do you know when it's in the air, it glides. It doesn't flap. There's a lot of flappers in the church. You ever met a flapper? You you get flappers, you know. I hope you like my animal impressions. They're awful. But there's flappers in the church. There's animals that flap. An eagle doesn't flap. When you see an eagle in the air, it glides. And actually, 90% of the time, it's just gliding. It's not its energy. Do you know if an eagle flapped constantly to try and get the ability to fly? Do you realize it would exhaust itself and finally kill itself? An eagle couldn't do that. An eagle has learned to use the winds, the movement, the heat of the atmosphere, and it simply glides. So a Christian needs to do the same. Oh, that we had an experience. Oh, I know there's the ox time. You labor to the point of exhaustion. You know, some Christians say it should be all eagle, all 90% coasting. If you're stressed out or working hard or tired, then you're not in the spirit. That's not true. There is an ox season where you labor to exhaustion and God commends it. Jesus commends it. Being tired through ministry could be commended. But I want to tell you there's another time where 90% you're just coasting. You know what you're doing? You're gliding on the Holy Spirit by grace, through faith. You're sim- you can't do this. I can't do what I'm doing, I want to tell you. I have to learn to, to be upheld and carried and to move in the Holy Spirit. And you go, you can't do that. I know I can't do it. I can't preach week in, week out. I can't do that. But you know what? If I can catch the current of the Spirit of God, then I can just coast on, on that. This eagle flies higher than any animal. It's a remarkable, remarkable animal. And a few times in the Bible, it says it attacks its enemies from a great height. It says in Job 9, 26, as the eagle hasteth to the prey. Or in Deuteronomy 28, it says, swift as an eagle that flieth. Do you know what the eagle does? It flies, swoops down in the enemy. If you're not flying, coasting, if you're not in the current of the air, you better not try swooping down in any enemies. I've seen some people are not in the spirit, but they want to take on the enemy. It's near destroyed them. I've seen these people, they're gossips, they're liars, they're backbiters, but they're binding powers of darkness in. I bind you, devil. Do you realize you're in a very dangerous place to play spiritual games? You're dealing with dark forces of the devil. I bind you. I've sat in meetings. I I sat in the living room. I bind you. I rebuke you. I, I take authority. And I'm sitting there going, this person's the biggest gossip that I know of in the whole region and all the churches I know. And they think the devil's scared of him. The devil's laughing and saying, sure, you're gossiping, lying, spreading my lies, and you're trying to take authority over me. You don't have authority. You better make sure you're gliding in the spirit. You better make sure you're above this earth in the spirit. Second of all, the vision of an eagle, the wings of an eagle, the vision of an eagle. It says again in Job 39, verse 29, her eyes behold afar off. This is one of the things about an eagle in the Bible. It beholds. Do you realize this book is over 4,000 years old, the book of Job? 
Do you realize the information all throughout the book of Job? It's the oldest complete written book in the Bible. And do you know that the information in it about the stars, the planets, about an eagle, he couldn't have known naturally at that point in time, utterly impossible. And there's thing after thing after thing. But this is one of the things he, he writes, her eyes behold afar off. We talk in our culture about having eagle eyes. What do we mean? If you have an eagle eye, it means a sharp eye, a clear eye. Usually you're an observant person. What other people all around you miss, you always see. You always see that one thing. You always pick up on it. You've got an eagle eye, a sharp eye, a clear eye, an observant eye. And so it's come into our culture. When you begin comparing an eagle's eye to a human eye, our human eye is amazing. It's remarkable. Do you ever consider your eye? The creation of it, the detail of it. Men want me to believe in evolution. Men want me to believe in the Big Bang. The eye is only one member, one thing. And yet I've got to go to every member of the body, then every animal in creation, then every planet in our universe. I'm telling you, it, it's, it, I, don't have, I don't have enough faith to even consider evolution as an option. I've never heard one statement that's even raised a question with me, and I've listened very hard. You know, with the human eye, there are 200,000 cones per millimeter in your eye, a human eye. 200, do you want to count them? You can check, 200,000 per millimeter in each of your eyes. But listen, an eagle has one million per millimeter within its eye of these little cones. It can spot a hare two miles away, accurately in detail, with more accuracy than you could see a rabbit in this room. That's what an eagle's eye is like. So not only do we see its wings that God wants to give you, there's eagle eyes, the ability to see afar off. When you begin to study the eye of an eagle, it's remarkable. They are the best eyes in all of creation. No other animal has eyes like an eagle. No human has comparable sight of an eagle. So from a great distance, a great height, it can see an accurate detail. It can see afar off at least four to eight times better than a human. Some would say when you take it all in, it's like a hundred times better. But it's not only seeing at a distance. Once it finds its target, it's got a built-in telescope that zooms in on that individual thing. So listen, it can see a great distance, but then it specifically zooms in on one incidental thing within its picture. When it's flying above the earth and looks down, it can survey and look at an entire five mile area of ground and keep an, a close eye on every little movement within that area. It's remarkable. It, it is detailed and accurate, close vision. It sees color better than you do. It sees wider than you do. It sees in more focused detail than you do. God has designed the eye of an eagle. You weren't meant to have an eagle's eye, but an eagle was. So from two miles up, it can look down, see the poor little rabbit, 
and sweep down upon it. Also notice that an eagle's eyes are on the side of its head. It has a wide vision. In fact, it can see without moving its eye, without blinking, without turning its eye, it can see 275 degrees around its body like that. Three quarters of a vision of its full panoramic. Would you know an eagle's eye constantly moves so it gets to see everything all of the time. It is such a panoramic view in around it. God has designed the eagle's eye to have a full view, an accurate view, a clear view, a specific view. They're also designed, and they are designed, eagles are carefully designed. God designed them so I could preach on it this morning. They also have special built-in eyelids. When it's on the ground, it uses one set. When it begins to fly off, it changes its glasses. Blink. (laughs) Doesn't need to go to um, eye savers, spec savers or anything else. It doesn't need to. All of this is built in. God created. And now recently they've just found a third set that are built into it as well, which have a whole process of salt protection or disinfection or uh, hygienic protection on the eye. Now, what are these filters for? To protect from the sun and to protect from the wind. I believe God wants us to be like the eagle, not only to mount up and have wings of an eagle, but to have the vision or the eyes of an eagle. The Bible says without a vision, the people perish. The people perish. The next verse says you get that vision in the word of God. It's not talking about a dream or a vision. It's not talking about that. The next verse says it's the law of God, the judgments of God. Where do you get your vision? It's a biblical vision. People perish, Christians, for lack of knowledge, for lack of vision. And you know what? Our church is being destroyed in this generation. It is no clear biblical vision and it's being destroyed. It says in 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 5, listen to what it says and where it takes you because it speaks about the ability to see afar off. An eagle has the ability to see afar off. But in 2 Peter, it talks about this being something spiritual in the Christian's life. The ability to see a long way off. How do you get that? Peter tells us in chapter 1 verse 5. He says, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue. So you've got faith, but you may not have virtue. You've got to add virtue to your faith. And to virtue, knowledge. And the knowledge, temperance, control, self-control. And to temperance, Patience, what we dealt with Wednesday night, and the patience, godliness, and the godliness, brotherly kindness, and the brotherly kindness, charity. Listen what it says. For if these things be in you and abound, they make you that you shall neither be barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. But he that lacketh these things is blind. Do you lack godliness? Do you lack patience? Do you lack brotherly kindness or charity? Then do you know what Peter says? You're blind. And you cannot see afar off. 
And you've forgotten that you were purged from your old sin. Do you know the ability to see far off? You forget, you do not have the ability to look back to Calvary and see your purge from your sin. I've met Christians in the church and they have forgotten that they are purged from their sin. They're going back living like a sinner again. They're getting drawn back into sin. You know, they become blind. They don't have eagle's eyes. When you have the eyes of an eagle, you can look back to Calvary. I can see Calvary here this morning. I can look back and go, I was purged. I was cleansed. I was forgiven. I was redeemed. It happened at the cross. I can look back through 2,000 years. How? The eyes of an eagle. Do you know what God has done in an eagle? He wants us to have the ability to see long distance back into the past. Calvary. I can see Mount Calvary. I'm not talking about anything strange here. You know that. I'm talking about faith, with faith in my heart. I can literally mount up like an eagle and I can look afar off and I see Mount Calvary's hill and I see the Lamb of God bleeding for me. It's the ability to see afar off. But if you're not moving on in your Christian life, you're not looking at Calvary. You don't have the ability. You know also, see at this Lord's table, see this morning I just lifted my eyes and I look forward and I saw the coming of Jesus. That's one of the things you're meant to remember. Do this in remembrance of me until I come. I'm coming again. Jesus is coming. It's so real to me. I cannot wait until Jesus comes again. The Lord Jesus is coming physically, visibly, literally, and it's a real thing to me. I know he is coming, and he's coming very soon. Lift up your eyes and see. Third of all, Judgment of an eagle. You may think that's strange. Remember what I said about John's Gospels. Not only love. Do you know in Greek culture 2,000 years ago, the word agape, love, was not used. They used eros. You won't find the Greek word eros in the Bible. It doesn't get used in the whole New Testament. Not once. You know what? Because it becomes so unclean, the apostles wouldn't use it. Instead, they used the word agape which Greek culture rarely used. But John's gospel is filled with love and his letters are filled with love. And he's called the apostle of love. He's a man filled with love. But do you know what? When you read the gospel of John, it's a book of judgment. Don't think you get love without judgment. You don't. And you know, the eagle is an animal of judgment. When you go back into the Old Testament again, Dan, who had of the tribe of Israel who had the standard of the eagle. You know what his name means? It means to judge. It says in Genesis 49 verse 16, Dan shall judge his people as one of the tribes of Israel. Do you know when that happened? Samson was of the tribe of Dan. He was born of Dan. Remember, he become a judge in Israel. Remember what God's plan was. God says, I'm going to provoke him and stir him that he's going to take the jawbone of an ass and kill a thousand Philistines. This man is going to judge the enemy. Don't you know judgment is a part of God's will to destroy his enemies? Don't you know when Jesus comes again, he's going to come with wrath and fire and judgment. He's a God of love. He doesn't want to judge anyone. He didn't create hell for man. He created for Satan and his fallen angels. He doesn't want to destroy any man or send any man to hell. 
You choose to go to hell when you reject his love. But he is going to come with judgment. And so we see that Dan was raised up to be a tribe of judgment, yet their symbol was the flying eagle, the eagle flying, and yet a tribe of judgment, judgment against the enemy. You know what eagles do when the enemy comes in against them? Maybe they have three other uh, predator birds attacking them. You know, other birds don't like, they're jealous of eagles. An eagle will fly alone and you'll get the other predators mounting up against it. You know what an eagle does? It simply locks its wings, flies into the sun, pulls down those special shutters so it can look right into the sun, doesn't harm its visions or its eyes. Other birds can't do that. But this eagle simply flies when the enemy comes in after it. It simply flies into the sun and the other birds feel the heat and the blinding light of the sun turns them back. It's a remarkable thing. And when you come to the gospel of John, you know, John's gospel isn't only a gospel of love. People say, John's the gospel of love. I want to tell you, it's more than that. When you begin reading John's gospel, you see it's filled with conflict with religious people, Pharisees, Jews, religious leaders. From John chapter 2, you see this theme throughout. What do you have in John chapter 2? At the beginning of the ministry of Christ, Christ goes into the temple and he clears out the temple. Remember, he throws over the table. Do you know the other gospels put that at the end of his ministry? It happens twice. When Christ started his ministry, he went into the temple and cleared it out. John puts it at the beginning. The others mark it and it's two different incidents. Right at the end, he goes in again three years later and he has to clear out the temple. You know, all through John's gospel, constantly and increasingly, he's in conflict with religious people. They are lying about him. They're murderous towards him. They hate his purity and his holiness. He wants to clean out the temple from money-making people. You know, today, Jesus still hates money-making people in the church. See, people who have taken religion, they're very religious, very devout, and they're making money out of that. Do you realize Jesus detests that? It's so dangerous. When it's not a house of prayer anymore, when the church becomes a religious institution. Remember John chapter three, Jesus comes to a religious leader, a man who knew the Bible, the Old Testament inside out, called Nicodemus. Remember what he said to him? He said, you need to be born again. Nicodemus says, what? What do you mean? I don't know what you're talking about. Nicodemus, are you telling me you know the Old Testament and you don't know that you're going to be born again? You know, you've read Ezekiel and you don't know you need to be born again. You know the scriptures and you don't know this. You know, Jesus was in conflict with religion. Religion will send you to hell. Oh, I believe in God. That doesn't mean anything. We're told in, 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 in James that the, even the devils believe and tremble. They're going to burn forever. You could believe this morning and tremble in the presence of God and yet still be on your way to hell. Religion doesn't save anyone. You need more than religion. You need to be born again. You know the word born again in John chapter 3? And you look it up in your concordance. It can mean born again born a second time. Go into the Greek word, it means born from above. 
a new birth, a heavenly birth. So the born, the born again experience isn't only a second spiritual birth. It is a heavenly birth. That's what John's gospel is. It's a new life, a new experience coming from heaven. But let me finish here in point four, the strength of an eagle. And I love this. And I'm going to close with this. The strength of an eagle. Isaiah chapter 40, verse 29. And this is speaking about God dealing with weak, struggling believers with battles. Listen to what he says. He, that is God, giveth power to the faint. Have you ever felt faint in your Christian walk? Have you ever been out there serving and you get tired? You almost feel like you can't read or you can't pray or you can't worship or you can't get into the gathering of God's saints. There's sometimes with troubles and trials and battles and circumstance and you go, my heart is going to fail. I'm going to faint in the midst of my day. Well, God has an answer for you. He giveth power to the faint. God gives power. When you feel faint, you ought to say, God, give me power. Give me your power. I don't have it. And to them that have no might, he increases strength. Even the youth shall faint and be weary. You older ones, do you never look at the younger, youngest ones and go, boy, I wish I was like them. They never get tired. These kids never stop. They can run and run and run and run and run. And after they do that, they run and run more. And do you ever sit and just go, I wish I had that energy? Well, look what God says. Even the youth shall faint and be weary. The young men shall utterly fall. But they that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with the wings as an eagle. They shall run and not be weary. And they shall walk and not faint. This is another mark of the eagle, the strength of an eagle. It says here, they that wait upon the Lord, they're fainting, they're tired, they're weary. They feel like they're going to collapse. They feel like they're over, they're worn out. Do you know eagles get worn out? Do you know that? They live to about 60 to 100 years old. Some live to 130 years old. I heard once of a man. He went to an eagle farm. He was a preacher and he studied the eagles all his life. And he went to this farm where the oldest eagle in that generation in America was. There was an eagle 128 years old. That's how old it was. There's one at the minute in around about 130, I believe, in our world. And when he went to the farm, his friend says, now I'm going to show you two eagles. One of them is the 128-year-old, sorry, it was 27 years old. And he says, I'm going to show you another young eagle and you tell me which is which. So he brought this expert in eagles in, this preacher who knew eagles, and he brought him in and he said, okay, you've handled eagles all through the years. You tell me, first handle this one, put him on your right arm, put this one on your left arm. Now you tell me which is the old and which is the young. This preacher studied, looked, he had had years of experience. He says, I can't tell any difference. Are, are they not the same age? He said, oh no. This one in your right arm is 127 years old. The one in your other arm is 16 months old. And yet they look the same. Do you realize every eagle gets worn 
its beak, its feathers. It gets tired. It gets battered. It comes to points of discouragement, of hopelessness, of thinking it's the end. But here in Isaiah, it talks about an experience of an eagle, of an eagle renewing its strength. And guess where it does that? On the, on the rock where it was born. It gets back to the rock again. Listen to what it means. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. The word renew there means to exchange your strength. You give your weakness to God. He gives you his strength and you get renewed. You get revitalized. There's not only the wings of an eagle and the eyes of an eagle and the judgment of an eagle. There's actually the strength of an eagle. I'm very encouraged this morning by this because when you get worn out and tired and the devil says you're finished, it's over, you've reached the end. There is an experience in God where you exchange, your whole strength is renewed and your youth comes again like it did at the beginning. You can look like a 16-month-old eagle when you're 127. And Brother Jerry's the happiest man in this room. I want to tell you. He's the one with the deepest, longest amen in this room. They shall mount up with wings of an eagle again. It also says in Psalm 103 and 5, concerning God, God who satisfieth thy mouth with good things, so that thy youth is renewed like the eagles. How does God renew your strength? He satisfies your mouth with good things. He feeds you. He drops you food. He gives you energy. He gives you things to eat. And as you eat what God gives you, you begin to renew your strength. The Bible tells you this. Are you sitting here and you go, I have lost my energy, my vigor, my ability to run or to fly or to mount up, my ability to walk the Christian life. I'm not praying as I used to pray. I'm not reading as I used to read. I'm not studying as I used to study. I'm not evangelizing like I used to. Was there something operating in your life that you have now lost that you feel you cannot regain? And you're believing the thoughts in your mind, going, you'll never have that back again. You can't recover it again. Well, what's Joel's prophecy about? I will restore unto you the years the locusts have eaten. Do you realize years of destruction? God can actually take that and restore it back to you in one moment of time. What the devil has taken from your life, either as a sinner or as a Christian, God can actually restore and give it back and rebuild and renew you and rejuvenate and bring you back to full vitality again. And I see this as the message of the eagle. When Dan would raise its banner with a flan eagle on it, you know what it meant to Israel? We can mount up with wings of an eagle. You, you can have your strength renewed again. What season of life are you in? And when the gospel of John was raised up in the New Testament, the divinity of Christ, this heavenly life, this testimony of Christ the eagle, but also you, the Christian eagle, you can renew your strength and have wings of an eagle and have the Lord restore you. Please stand with me here. Father, we thank you, we bless you, we praise you right now. Lord God, will you renew us, oh God? Will you even stir us again? Will you satisfy our mouth with good things that we might mount up with wings of an eagle? We want to run again with energy and power. We want to be endued with power from on high. 
And Lord God, we do ask for your grace and your mercy in Jesus' mighty name. Hallelujah. Amen.